Well, hello again, everybody. It's that time of the week. Another episode of Inside Curling. Uh, Kevin, another week in the books. Uh, we're losing track of what part of the world you're in. It wouldn't be surprised. Say, well, Jim, I'm down in Brazil right now. <laughs> you're all set to go, Kev. We've, we've caught you for a few minutes where you're not in an airplane. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, we're back down in the U.S. getting ready to do the uh, U.S. men's and women's Olympic trials down in, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. So pretty excited about that. Warren's been pouring through all the emails, as he usually does on, uh, in our Facebook group, and apparently a few people are picking on me. But Warren put a shield up. He said, okay, Jim, we won't, we won't read those ones. Warren, how are you doing, man? I'm good, Jim. Out here in the West Coast, we're all growing webbed feet because it just keeps raining. We've had one of the wettest falls on record, so it's raining. Quit complaining, okay? Quit complaining. You forget I live in Edmonton. <laughs> Time to talk some curling. Let's do this thing. Last rock. Eighth end, up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh, it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, boys, uh, time to talk curling and what happened all this week. Uh, we've got a great show coming up for you. We want to thank all the good people at Goldline, Sports Interaction, Coyote Tractor, Nestle Boost, and Meridian Manufacturer. Uh, they're supporting curling, and we encourage you to support them. Uh, what's happening around the curling world? Of course, the Boost National Grand Slam event was held this past week. The Asia-Pacific Championships are on in Kazakhstan. And this coming week, the U.S. Olympic Trials will take place in Omaha, Nebraska. The Stu Sells Classic will be happening in Halifax. And the Canadian Mixed Championship. Not mixed doubles, mixed championship. Uh, we got to get into that. Hot Rock Topics. Uh, Jennifer Jones has decided to have a five-person team. Uh, is this a good idea? Something other teams should think about? Uh, we'll get both of your opinions on all that. And again, the mailbag warns that he's, he's got a nice email. Okay, no. <laughs> this week that we're going to look at. Also, story time. In Briar history, there was a Briar where every participant received two Purple Hearts. You know, what's a Purple Heart, and how do you get two of them? Uh, thanks a lot, everyone, for uh, weighing in on the show and listening. We encourage you to get a hold of us. We want your opinions, and we get lots of them. Uh, you can get a hold of us inside curling at gmail.com. Let's start with what's happening around the curling world. We'd like to thank Sports Interaction. Uh, providing competitive odds on all sports. Sports Interaction is Canada's odds maker. you got to be 19, and we want you to play responsibly. Kev, the Boost Nationals. I, I thought it was great. I thought it was really good. Uh, I was talking to Warren a little bit while it was on, and uh, Warren's a tough critic. He can be a tough critic, but, but even Hansen said that was some of the best curling he's ever seen. Well, it was a fantastic event. The, I guess let's, let's start with the, the crowd. Um, in Oakville, uh, prior, just uh, two days out of the slam a couple of weeks ago, there's only allowed to be just a small percentage of the building sold. And, of course, it was great to see some crowd. 
But in Chestermere, they were able to sell the building out. And so Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, it was a sellout. And I know that meant a lot to the players to be able to get in front of an energized crowd full of people yelling, screaming, having cocktails, and just having a really, really good time. And, and you could tell that with the athletes too, that it really brings up the, uh, the energy of the athlete when you've got all the crowd in the building and, and yelling and screaming and having fun. And, and it was the first time the Pinty's Pub was back with people in it allowed to enjoy themselves and uh, and everybody had to be vaccinated double vaxxed um, they had to show proof of that but at least at least it got kind of back to well sort of normalish um, so that was fantastic the finals to Warren's point were great um, the the men's final was first and uh, a guju against uh, Mawat it was kind of funny you know we're at one point uh, we we're talking about uh, Mark Nichols out playing Grant and uh, at the third position, Grant Hardy. And then we go up and show the percentages of the game and Grant's at 98%. (laughs) We're talking about, but it wasn't that he was missing shots. He was rolling just not into the exact right spot. So all the shots he's making are four to four or five out of five as far as percentage goes, but they just weren't quite put in the right spot. And then Mark Nichols would make also just a four or a five out of five. And, but but make the roll behind to save the end like he did in the fifth with his double and roll. Or, and then the sixth, I, I, I still wonder, and I think we're going to have to have Bruce Mowat back on the show again. His last one in six, he's lying one and, uh, and going to split the rings. And uh, he decides to hit one in the side eight. And it was a difficult shot. He could see maybe two-thirds of it and understanding he has tremendous sweepers. Threw it perfect, came around the guard perfect, rolled about a foot into a double, and Brad Gushu made the double. With his sweepers, he could have just lobbed a draw, probably, to the T-line and split the house exactly and have no double. So, you know, it would be interesting to talk to uh, to Bruce after that. And then, of course, once Gushu got the deuce in six, he kind of just walked it to victory. On the women's side, the final was also fantastic. Hasselborg picks up a, a four-ender in the third to go up four to one. But watch out, Tracy Fleury just one down with Hammer coming home, but could not, uh, couldn't win the game in eight, had to uh, settle for a single, go the extra end. So the finals were absolutely fantastic. The best draw, though, the best draw, in my opinion, of the week was the women's quarters on Saturday at noon local time in Calgary. I don't know, I'd like to hear from people, their thoughts, because I know the men's final was great. I know the women's final was great. But my, in my opinion, the best draw of the week was the women's quarterfinals Sunday at noon. I, I came off, and, and Curtis Savile's our executive producer, and he's done a million curling games. And I met with him in the lunchroom after that game, and I said, Curtis, I, I think that might have been the best curling game I've ever been part of. It was absolutely incredible across the sheets. And that was the Around the Rings coverage that we do with Sportsnet. And I don't know. What do you think, Warren? Because I, I, in my opinion, that draw was phenomenal. Yeah, no, without question. And I think, again, that final game was phenomenal too. I've never uh, witnessed a game curled much better than that one. It's kind of interesting in that women's final, though. They were both somewhat struggling. And I want your opinion of Tracy Fleury's call in the eighth end of trying what I thought was practically an impossible double coming out a little full on it, and as a result, taking out the shot stone and, and staying for one and forcing the extra end. But I thought that wasn't a very good uh, percentage shot to play. Or was she thinking of the fact of, my odds of winning an extra end are so slim, I may as well try this uh, Hail Mary shot right now and see what happens. What, what was your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I voted for her to try it, simply because of who she's playing. 
Um, the odds of, to your point, the odds of stealing against Hasselborg are, uh, are, are slim. And uh, it, was, it was a difficult shot, but she had to hit less than an inch of the rock in the top four. To, she didn't have to stick the shooter. So she just had to make contact with both. And the way I always looked at those doubles, it's, it's, it's the same as a nose hit. Like all of those doubles, if you, if you know the math, is simply a nose hit. And you just have to hit in the right spot. So she gave it a try, but I think kind of a lackluster try. You know what I mean? Like if she was outside a little, she would hit the back one, nose it. Tracy, she's smart. Like she's a super smart skip. And uh, so she knew what she was doing. Um, I think just kind of at the last second slid out and went, mm, let's make sure we get to the extra. <laughs> And I don't blame her a bit. Uh, you talk about how great the curling was, Kevin. You know, when, when you started curling a long time ago, uh, when you look at it now, Kevin, could you curl against these guys now, Kevin? Or ha- has the game changed enough over the last several years that you would have to be a different kind of curler? Well, I think M- uh, Wayne Madaw proved that at the Briar in the bubble when uh, he hadn't really curled much. And he put on a show. <laughs> So no, I, I, the game changes, absolutely. But the top athletes, I think, it doesn't matter the era. I always hear people talk about, well, Wayne Gretzky wouldn't get this many goals in this era. Yeah, he would. It doesn't matter. When you're really, really good at something, you'll still be good no matter what the era, I think. Well, I'm wondering if your phone will ring. We were talking, uh, one of the things we're going to talk about is a five-man team. And uh, there's an interesting guy, uh, an older guy that's going to be asked to play. I thought, well, maybe Kev- maybe someone will call Kevin. That would be something. Would you go? Yeah, that'd be something. Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm done. I'm okay. done. I'm, I'm Maybe not Hanson. Maybe they'll give you a call, Warren, to play in one of those teams. Um, speak, speaking of Warren, the Asia Pacific Championships, Warren, are being held in Kazakhstan, as we said. What's this championship all about? Who, whoever wins this thing, what does that mean, Warren? Uh, bring us up to date. Well, a big thing that's happening here is the women's side of the event will qualify two people for the women's or two teams, you should say countries for the women's worlds in Prince George. And on the men's side, one team will qualify. And why there's only one qualifying on the men's side, because last year at the world championship, one of the Asia Pacific teams finished last. So as a result, that position will go into the challenge round. It takes place in December, but let's just take a quick look on the women's side. They're playing a double round robin. There's only four teams. Interesting, Nigeria was supposed to be in this event, and they pulled out the last win at minute. So there's only four teams, and no surprise, Japan and Korea are three and one, Kazakhstan one and two, and Hong Kong zero and three. They're playing a double round robin, and then at the end, interesting enough, it's a four-team playoff, so they're all in the playoffs. But I think there's a little question that uh, Kazakhstan, or pardon me, Kazakhstan won't be winning, but Japan and Korea probably will. Interesting absence from this event is an Australia, New Zealand, and China uh, because of COVID. Okay, at the moment in the men's side, Japan is in first place at 4-1. and one. Interesting, Kazakhstan at 2-1 and one, along with Korea. And uh, then we go over into Chinese Taipei at 2-2, two and two, Hong Kong 1-2, and two, Qatar 1-2, and, and Saudi Arabia 0-4. On the men's side, uh, a little different situation with the, the playoff situation. Um, there's a round robin taking place on the men's side. At the end, again, four teams will qualify, and they'll go into a one-place-four, two-place-three playoff, and that will determine two teams to go to the men's worlds in Las Vegas in April. I love that format. Uh, four teams in it, and you all make the playoffs. That's real. <laughs> I, I, I love that. I love that. Kev, you're on your way to Omaha, Nebraska, for the U.S. Olympic trials. Tell us about that. 
Yeah, actually, I was on the phone uh, here just a few minutes ago with CJ, our uh, our executive producer in uh, in NBC. And yeah, we're all pretty stoked to get there and and uh, with the men's and women's because uh, uh, with the men's and women's teams doing well in the worlds, it's uh, a matter of who's going to go to the Olympic Games. And uh, and of course, the favorites. You know, there's no surprise. You've got the the young bucks, uh, Corey Dropkin and company, and of course Schuster. The gold medalist, the reigning gold medalist in curling, John Schuster, and you know, and Rich Runin played so well in the mixed doubles. You, you know, it would be a bit of a surprise, I think, if Rich were to win, but not too much of one. So, on the men's side, and of course, Tabitha uh, Peterson has to be the favorite. She's just a phenomenal player, played really well in the mixed doubles as well. And uh, uh, Jamie Sinclair, though, played fantastic in the mixed doubles with Rich Runin, and uh, you can't. Uh, count them out or Corey Christensen but um, you know if I'm leaning anywhere you've got to lean towards the past champ in Schuster and and Tabitha of course but uh, the the big thing is the uh, the events I'll tell you what um, there's going to be a little bit of a I think I shouldn't talk at a school but we may try something a little bit different on the telecast something that hasn't been really done in curling and something just a little bit I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag Jimmy not going to do it but uh, something pretty exciting. I'm excited anyway, but I'm kind of a crazy curling guy. <laughs> you get excited easy. <laughs> I get excited. Oh, about curling. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're becoming the great teaser of the hook, Kevin. Okay. What's, what's going now, now you got me. Uh, Warren, we don't often talk about uh, mixed curling. It is the Canadian Mixed Championships in Canmore, Warren. Yeah, this is an interesting event. This goes back, this event was started in 1965, and certainly back in my era, this was a very uh, important event in the Canadian curling scene. What used to generally happen was both in the men's and women's side of play, if you didn't qualify for the Briar Playdowns <clears throat> or the Scotties, you would uh, then enter the mixed. And as a result, uh, most of the prominent players of the day uh, did that, and a lot of them showed up in the Canadian Mixed Championship, and, and a lot were very successful. Uh, I played in the event, and on our team was Gail Lee, who was a two-time Canadian women's champion at the time. Uh, Rick Folk has won the event twice. Rick Lang has won it, just uh, to mention a few, along with uh, Barry Fry. However, in recent times, I don't see too many of the top players anymore go near this event, but there's a lot of sort of what I would call second-tier uh, players that still do go in it. But at the moment, there's 14 provinces and territories playing in Canmore, and they're divided into two sections of seven, going through a round robin. And in the A pool, an interesting predominant name, Jamie Cooey of Northwest Territories, is on top with a 4-0 record. Then we have Northern Ontario 4-1. And, and another interesting name, Jean-Michel Menard from Quebec, is in third spot at 3-1. Of course, he won the Briar back in 2006, and I believe the Canadian mixed in 2001. Over in the B side, we've got Saskatchewan at 4-1, British Columbia at 3-1. Ontario at 3-1, and, and New Brunswick, another name, James Grattan, is at 3-1. and one. When they complete the round robin, and it's kind of another interesting, all these playoffs now seem to be different. So they've got four teams going from each side, and they're going to play an elimination down to taking four teams to get into the playoff, and that will all be settled this weekend in Canmore. That's a beautiful curling club, Jimmy, in Canmore. Really well run. A friend of mine, Darren Cook, runs a club there. Ice will be absolutely fantastic. Uh, the, the top teams should have the best chance there because the conditions are great. And what a beautiful setting down in the valley right beside the golf course in Canmore. And uh, uh, they will love it. Uh, for anyone who's not been here to Alberta, Canmore is right in the mountains as you go west out of Calgary. Uh, thanks a lot to Sports Interaction for bringing us our What's Happening Around the Curling World. You're all up to date now. 
Uh, we appreciate that, Kevin. We look forward to seeing you because you, you said there's going to be a surprise with the, with the uh, broadcast. Well, I'm not the producer, Jimmy. I'm not, okay. I'm not in charge, but, but we've been talking about it. So if technically we can make it happen, it'll be very cool. Hot Rock Topics coming up is brought to you by Coyote Tractor, proud partner of Team Brad Jacobs and Grand Slam of Curling. Coyote, we dig dirt. Warren, what is the difference uh, with uh, someone now, Jennifer Jones, having a five-person team? Why is that any different than teams having an alternate or a fifth man? Well, interesting enough, an alternate and a fifth man in a five-player team is quite different in the fact that in a five-player team, everybody is getting regular rotations. They're all playing on, a, on an ongoing basis, whereas in an alternate situation, that player normally isn't brought in unless there's an, an injury or some reason that one of the regular four can't play. But Jennifer is going with this five-person team, and they're all fitting into the rotation uh, at the lead position particularly, but it's an interesting concept. And this goes back to alternate players were introduced in the Briar and Scotties back in the early 80s. And up until that time, it was very strange because you had a four-person team, and if something happened to one of those players, you couldn't replace them. Well, actually, you could because the the way the rules read, you could replace them with a player from the club that you uh, were in the competition out of as long as they hadn't played in the competition at the start of it. So it had to be somebody that simply wasn't at that level. But in the early 80s, that all changed and alternates were introduced. But the alternates never really have caught on. I thought they would have. I thought by this point in time, we'd have most teams using five players and rotating them because amongst other things, in today's world, it's a pretty grueling uh, circuit that they're on and people get injured they get tired and uh, you need to I think on occasion rest people I think also you need to have something in place if particularly the skip or the vice skip were to be unable to play for whatever reason that there's a solid game plan in place as to how you would deal with that and who would play what positions and how you would be able to continue on with hopefully only taking a deep breath I mean if you lose your starting goalie in hockey you don't throw up your hands and say oh my god we're going to put a defenseman in goal so it's an interesting concept, and I thought by this point in time there'd be more teams doing it, but uh, there aren't. Well, this is something that I think you and I talked about, uh, definitely Jerry Peckham and I talked about at the O2 Olympics, going back almost 20 years. And So maybe this is a stride in that direction, which is great. I know that uh, Jennifer certainly, Jennifer Jones certainly likes this idea of having a five-person team for more rest, and of course with, um, with some of the team members having babies, and getting families going and all of that is tough to to travel as much and to have a five-person team gives them a little bit more freedom to to play play at the highest level of curling but not have to play every single week but then talking to jerry peckham way back in the day um i always questioned like okay who are we going to take as a fifth because it's really tough to replace say uh don bartlett at the time back in 02 if if say he his back were to trick out on him and we had to bring somebody in that's usually who we brought because don was the biggest chance with us because his back wasn't very good at the time which made sense okay so let's bring in a, a really good front end player as a fifth but then what if Walchuk or myself were to go down that front end player we bring in is probably not the right person to replace myself or Walchuk. so i brought up the you know to uh, to jerry it might have been to you warren you might remember and that's to bring in to for worlds and olympics and and, and events like that a six-man team you bring in a front-end player and you bring in the back-end. No different than in hockey. You're not going to make a, a real good center uh, put on the goalie pads if the goalie gets hurt. You know, it's just not, it's not possible. So um, that's something I brought up. And maybe this idea of having five-person teams will morph a little bit further into, into that idea 
from all those years ago. Um, but I certainly think it's smart. I know Joan McCusker, my uh, Sportsnet analyst partner, um, she's a big supporter of this five-person team because you know, back in with Sandra Schmerler in their days, when they started to have kids, it was difficult. And, and, uh, and to have that extra player who could come in and, and, and play, as long as you've got the, that same level of player, which, of course, Jennifer Jones does because she's got Don McEwen and Elisa Weagle, both fantastic players. So uh, it's a good situation. I, 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 I'm 100% behind it. I think it makes a lot of sense. Interesting move this week of Epping announcing that uh, Glenn Howard's going to be his alternate player for the trials. And I guess I'd ask the question, are you bringing Glenn Howard because of his wisdom and experience that he can offer you? Or are they really thinking about maybe that Glenn could step in at skip or certainly uh, third if need be? And of course, I, I thought about that. Epping has been struggling a bit lately. Uh, what exactly are their thoughts behind this? What, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I haven't talked to, to anybody, but when I heard it, I wasn't surprised. Glenn's been curling terrific. And yes, smart. <laughs> well, as smart as it gets in our, in our sport. Um, so if I were to look into a crystal ball, if, if Epping's team were to start out a little bit flat, like they have been for, I don't know what they are now. Uh, I shouldn't say a number because somebody will get after me because I'm wrong, but they're well below 500 as a team this year. Um, curling not for curling very well i would not be surprised to see glenn come in hold the broom call the game and maybe throw maybe throw second rocks and uh and have epping throw skip rocks but not call the game and maybe just mix things up a little bit and maybe have matt cam sit on the bench for a little bit um and have langer throw lead i, I would not be surprised at all if the team were to maybe struggle in the first game um i but that that is not from any knowledge like i don't i don't know that it's just sort of hmm you know that, that I, I think it's a great pick, and I wouldn't be half surprised if Glenn plays because he's playing tremendous right now. So what we're doing is you're crystal balling and what they might be thinking. Absolutely, only out of my own mind. <laughs> this is my own thoughts, totally. Yeah, and when Glenn hears this, he'll phone me and give me <laughs> give me hack. Yeah. That, that's, that's, that's okay. Did you ever have to bench anyone, Kev? Uh, on your team and go through that difficult situation or yourself did you ever have to bench yourself <laughs> that'd be an argument wouldn't it but no uh i don't know i don't think we ever did that but we certainly used the fifth for lots of different reasons uh don bartlett his back and uh, also in the olympics in 92 don bartlett his uh, wife then shauna had some trouble with her pregnancy and uh he went to the hospital so actually we had our fifth play the bronze game in in 92 so um it's happened, certainly. We've used our fifth. Ken Trollenberg played quite a lot. Uh, Jules Ochar in the Briar in Calgary, 97. Uh, I might have been uh, Regina in 92, actually. But anyway, over the years, we've certainly used the fifth quite a lot. Hot Rock Topics, brought to you by Coyote Tracker. Thanks a lot to those guys. Time to go to the mailbag. The Inside Curling Mailbag is brought to you by Boost. Up your nutrition game with Boost. Convenient meal replacement drinks with a taste you're guaranteed to love. Uh, Warren, we're going to uh, talk about Russ and his email uh, to us. He says, I've heard a lot about growing the sport in your podcast. Meanwhile, the number of competitive curlers is in a critical downward slide. Here in Ontario, we just held our U21 provincial event. In total, there were 14 teams competing, and that included a few U18 teams. So, today on Ontario, there are fewer than 14 competitive U21 teams. Compare that to a decade earlier when each of our 16 zones had about five entries. The bottom line is that we are not growing the sport. The truth is 
quite the opposite. I, I couldn't agree with him more, but this is such a complex situation. I, I look at this whole issue of curling across Canada and particularly at the youth level, and, and for the most part, it's it's not doing well. Uh, in club, some clubs, again, it is doing very well because they've actively taken a, a role into it. But I look at to some degree, it's a, it's the old position we're taking that kind of one size fits all. So you start curling as a youngster, and there's kind of only one route for you to go down, and that's a competitive route. And uh, it's more or less a survival of the fittest. There really isn't a system where people are taking step by step by step through the process. And so you start to play, and if you're successful, you keep at it. If you aren't maybe that successful, you might just drop back. And to some degree, there isn't really a place for you to drop back to. And in many cases, I think people just quit as a result of it. We need to revamp this whole system. I think as a person comes into the sport, there needs to be two avenues that they can look at doing. Do you want to be competitive? Do you want to just participate and and, and become involved as a, as a recreational player? And this is the way you should go if you want to do that. And this is the way you should go if you want to be competitive. And along this route, probably up until that time you're 21, 22 years old, you can jump back and forth if you change your mind. And of course, this all needs to be taken step by step. Don't get me wrong, there's some excellent coaches in Canada that are doing some great work. But I think overall, we, we don't seemingly have a standard system where this can all go step by step by step. And I agree fully with Russ. Uh, we have a major problem in Canada in the fact that we don't have Gen Zs in the sport and the numbers that we need as participants or as, as fans to sustain our numbers going forward. Yeah, you know, I appreciate the email for sure. And uh, a lot of times that when I talk about the growth of curling, I look at the at the world. I don't talk about one province, one city, one country. And curling is one of the fastest growing sports in the entire world right now. So to Russ's point, you know, um, when you look at where you're, you know, you're talking about, I think there's areas in the world where where curling will be struggling. There's areas that are going gangbusters. So, you know, for me, I always look at, at the bigger picture. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I remember we uh, when I when curling was actually announced by the World Curling Federation a few years ago as being the fastest growing sport in the world. I remember getting an email from a friend of mine. Uh, his name's Jeff Erickson and a really good curler back in the day. He said, I'll just paraphrase, you idiot. That's not true. It's not growing fast. Play down numbers are blah, blah, blah. And they're really low. But that's not what I was talking about. I was talking about the sport growing like crazy, and it is. And uh, But the play down numbers, they, there is an issue with that. And, I, and Warren and I had a bit of an argument, was it yesterday or two days ago about it? To me, it has to be a little bit more fun. Um, the junior bond spiel I ran for 17 years, we had 16 sheets of ice, so I could only fit 78 teams. We always had 78 teams, always very competitive. And then you look at the playdown numbers, and let's just throw a number out that I don't care what it is. Eight teams enter the playdowns, but 78 come to the bond spiel. I wonder why that is. I think it's because of there's fun, a banquet. We gave out scholarships at the banquet. It was just a really big event. The banquet was around 350 people that, that was all included in, in the entry fee. And I kind of think that's one thing that needs to be done in curling is these playdown type events. I think you need to open it up and have it be 100, 200 teams, uh, whatever, and have it be fun with banquets and prizes and you name it. And, and, and in the end, the cream will rise to the top and the top team will win. And, and that's great. And, but all these other young players and other teams will have fun along the way and they can't wait to be as good as, you know, Janet and Steve, who, who ends up, who end up winning the men's and the women's side of it. Um, 
but they all get to, get to ride along. But these playdowns where they're done right now, they're, they're, there's not a lot of fun. It's not directed to fun. It's directed to competitive play, I understand. But they're still kids, and, and kids love to be around other kids and have big events, and I just think that's a major part of it that's missing. It, it might be one of the great ironies in all of sports. Canada, okay, was known as a curling nation, and yet now all the other countries that aren't known, it's growing there that they wouldn't, you know, normally you wouldn't pick those countries to have anything to do with curling. Dropping in Canada, but rising in participation around the West, rest of the world. Well, Canada's still strong though, Jimmy. Canada's still really, really strong in curling. It's just a matter of maybe evolving a little bit from what we were, you know, 20, 30 years ago to be able to grow the sport. That's really what has to ch happen. It's just evolve. We don't have to drastically change anything. We have a wonderful sport. But it's just kind of uh, the way we do it is maybe a little bit old-fashioned, whereas the new countries coming in, they don't have the old-fashioned ideas that they have to hang on to or you know think they have to hang on to, and that causes a bit of trouble with going forward uh, for Canada. So we need to just sort of change and uh, put a little life into our youth sport side of it, and we'll be just fine. We're not unlike, not unlike a lot of sports today. We're going through a changing time, and... For the most part, the Gen Zs and the young millennials aren't being grabbed by a lot of these sports and, and, and as fans or as participants. And as a result, numbers are slipping. And let's make one thing clear. Canada is the biggest curling country in the world at one point in time claiming one million participants. That's certainly down considerably today from what it once was. But I'm sure today we're still around six to 700,000. And the rest of the curling world combined probably is going to be difficult to come up with 100,000. So certainly Canada is the, is the powerhouse of the world when it comes to numbers. But these other countries have done very well in developing their teams and their athletes. And as a result, uh, that's what you're seeing happening at uh, Grand Slams and Olympics and World Championships today. They've taken a few people, they've worked with them very, very closely, and they've developed them into very good players. And to some degree, we've still left most of our development is by chance. We don't build teams like they do. We don't really make an effort to have our top players as full-time athletes, and these other countries have. So that's where the difference is right now. But Canada's still doing very well. It's just the fact is we've got to do something to encourage uh, more of the younger people to take up the sport and become involved with it in some way. I like what Kevin's saying. If it ain't fun, man, I am not playing, Kev. I am not playing if it ain't fun. <laughs> That's what I was like as a kid, unfortunately. That's what I was like. I loved going into junior bond spiels. I, the playdowns, there were five teams in my zone. It was kind of boring. But the but the bond spiels, you go to a 32-team or 48-team bond spiel and meet all these kids and end up being friends of yours for the rest of your life and... I don't know. It, it, that, that's where I think the sport has to, to, to be is an event-based sport that are fun and prizes and get-togethers and, and you just make a lot of friends and, and I think that's very healthy. I think there's three cool words I picked up here a little while ago about Gen Zers as to how to attract them. It's got to be fun. It's got to be quick. It's got to be engaging. That is our mailbag segment. Thanks very much to Nestle Boost. If you want to get a hold of us, do it at insidecurling at gmail.com. Uh, normally we have a guest uh, every week. This week we don't because there's so much going on. We got a we got a pack show. Uh, we would like to thank Goldline Curling Equipment because uh, they do sponsor our guest spot. They can be found in pro shops and curling stores all around the world. Plus, there are retail stores in Calgary, London, Scarborough, Mississauga, and there's two stores in Ottawa. Goldline can be found at every Grand Slam of curling event and online anytime at goldlinecurling.com. All right, time to get to story time. 
Brought to you by Meridian Manufacturing, your industrial and on-farm storage and handling partners, and a proud sponsor of the Grand Slam of Curling. Warren, you're on. Uh, this is uh, interesting to me. I'm super curious. We're talking about the Briar, where there was a year when every participant received two purple hearts. How, did, how does that work, Warren? And what's the purple heart? Interesting, Jim. This goes way back to 1927 in the beginning of the Briar. And when McDonald Tobacco Company started the Briar in 1927, there was a few traditions that were created that have continued on since then. First of all, the term Briar... Many think it's an old Scottish term, but it's not. It was the name of a pipe tobacco that McDonald Tobacco were manufacturing back in the 20s. And inside the tin of pipe tobacco was this plug. It was in the shape of a heart, and it was silver. And inside the plug was a small plastic purple heart. And so two things evolved out of that. The crest on the sweater that indicates you were a provincial territorial champion was shaped in the form of a heart and was purple. And the silver heart was the emblem that was placed on the trophy. And as you will notice today, if you see the Briar Trophy, there is a engraved silver purple heart with the names of every winner uh, for the year that uh, is represented. And that all goes back to 1927. And, and of course, uh, it was a pipe tobacco. And it continued on through the McDonald tobacco era. And in 1979, after 50 years, McDonald's left the sponsorship and in came Labatt. And it's interesting, I was involved in those days and working with a guy by the name of Grant Waterman from Labatt's, who was the new man put in charge of bringing the briar into a new realm, a new era. And so Grant had a lot of interesting ideas. One I didn't agree with, uh, replaced that beautiful silver tankard, the hand-tooled cup that was made in the early 20s with a big gold beer mug. <laughs> I mean, the McDonald tobacco, I can, I can remember some of this stuff, um, he, he wanted scoreboards, and so they made these stainless steel scoreboards that were absolutely beautiful, but, I mean, they had to make 10 of them. They were costing an enormous amount of money back in those days, and the only way you could move them was with a forklift. So that was another one of Grant's great ideas, but this one was, was the best one, and he thought it was time to change the design of the Purple Heart. So he thought it would be maybe fitting if uh, the, the Purple Heart was put inside of an oval. And so they designed a crest that had a purple heart on it, but it was inserted inside of the oval. So it wasn't a heart, it was an oval. And so things moved on and presented this new purple heart to all the participants in the 1980 Briar. But once the players got together and got on site, the grumbling started. And uh, people weren't very happy with this new innovation developed by Grant. And to the point that Sid Owen, who was the president of the company, arrived on the scene, I think it was Friday, to be there for the closing dinner, and a number of the top players of the day, like Jim Ursel, I believe, and Peter Hope, who were in their last briars, cornered Sid Olin and said, hey, this is not acceptable. This is, just doesn't fly. And so at the closing dinner of the 1980 briar, Sid Olin stood up and he said, you know, I've heard your concerns and your complaints about this uh, new Purple Heart. And let me assure you, we are going to redesign and go back to the old one and everyone will receive one. And I was sitting at the table with Grant Waterman, who was really thoroughly annoyed with all this. And their nickname for Sid Olin was the president of the company because he was, was Sid the Squid. He said, God damn, Sid the Squid. I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> and so as a result, uh, every player in the 1980 Briar was issued a new Purple Heart. And to this day, they're the only Briar participants to ever get two Purple Hearts for one year. And the Oval never appeared again. 
I like the fact, Warren, that uh, you you knew it would ultimately end that you can't have a tobacco company sponsoring a sporting event. So they dropped that and said, okay, let's go with a beer company then. And so we got, got we'll get a booze. Kev, where do you, where do you keep all all of your awards and trophies and medals and all that stuff? Do you you must have a shrine at home somewhere. That's a topic that's discussed quite a bit, Jim, at our house. But I, but the Purple Hearts are are, are definitely a, a keeper out of all the stuff, and uh, we we put them all, all on one jacket. So so that's good. Um, but as far as all the, I think right now I've got eighteen of those big Tupperware things <laughs> in storage. Uh, some of the main, like the, 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 the big things like the, you know, are, are in the basement and on, on various places and so on. And there's so much stuff. It's, it's really cool. I, it's funny, you know, we, we built the basement um, to fit a, a pool table exactly the right way. Cause I love billiards. And at the end of behind the pool table, I've actually got, the lights all set up. Everything was built into the into the house. Pro- I didn't build anything, but the, the proper for uh, for the trophy case idea. We built the house in in '07. It's still set in the same way. So it's a it's a topic of conversation. Yes, Jim. Where's the gold medal from the Olympics? Well, that if I'm not going anywhere um, with appearances and stuff, they go in the bank um, in a safety deposit box because uh, it, they won't be replaced if if they're stolen. Uh, like Rona Martins, I don't think she's got hers back yet um, from the O2 Olympics. Um, if they still exist, they won't be replaced because they exist somewhere and, and someday you'll get it back. So so that's a real thing. So you got to make sure that uh, you secure them. Absolutely. Yeah. I've, one of the funniest things I saw over uh, after the last Olympics, uh, intentionally, a female athlete, Canadian, I forget who it was, they filmed her at the airport uh, walking through security. And of course, she she walked through, and all the lights lit up, you know, in that X-ray machine. And she said, "Oh, sorry, it must be this." And she pulled out her gold medal. <laughs> Today, it was just, it was absolutely brilliant. Uh, boys, what a great show! Another one in the books, fantastic. Thanks a lot to everyone for listening. Thank you to all our sponsors, and uh, certainly Meridian for bringing us story time. We're going to do it each and every week. Uh, Inside Curling is also reaching out to curling clubs all over the world, inviting you to contact us, uh, insidecurling at gmail.com. If you want to do a Zoom meeting, we started doing those a while ago, and we'd love to get back into do them. Uh, let us know. Uh, we're doing it on a limited basis, but it would be great uh, to sit down with your curling club or whatever group you'd like, and uh, we'll get Kevin and Warren on there, and we'll do a Zoom call with you. Also, Rod Paulson, uh, his company, In-House Strategies, and all the great work he's doing on our Facebook page and for our Facebook group. Once again, insidecurling at gmail.com. We're back again next week with another episode. If Kevin can make it through all his travels. Uh, and Warren, you don't, fl- you don't get flooded with water. Good job, boys. We'll talk to everybody next week. See you, Kevin. See you, Warren. Hey, thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim.